All right, good morning, everybody. Um, starting today, we're going to start a three-part sermon series on the marks of the church. And um, as we get into that, I'm very excited to share this with you. And um, before we begin, let's start with a prayer. Almighty Gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your Holy Word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your Holy Word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts. To your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's turn to Romans chapter 10. Verse 14 to 17. We'll be going through a lot of selected scriptures this morning, but we'll start with Romans chapter 10, verse 14 to 17. If you have a pew Bible, you can find it on page 890. Once you've found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, just, I just as I have mentioned earlier, uh, we'll be starting a three-part sermon series on the marks of the church, and we won't go exactly on, you know, this sermon is on this specific mark only, but we'll kind of weave through the three marks in and out uh, throughout the three weeks. Before we do that, I just wanted to share with you that today is actually Reformation Sunday. But before I get into that, even that, we should talk about Halloween, okay? And so, as some of you already know, Halloween is a shortened word for All Hallows' Eve, right? I'm sure many of you already know this. Halloween is a shortened word for All Hallows' Eve, and hollow means holy. It's another word for holy. Just as when we pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That means God's name is holy. And so what is or what was All Hallows Eve? Well, it's the day before All Hallows Day, like duh. But just as we have Christmas Eve before Christmas Day, it was a big tradition throughout the ages, and it goes even as far as back as the 7th century, where the church would recognize this tradition and commemorate it as a very special day. All Hallows Day was a special day, and it's actually what well, we have written records of it going all the way back, and probably even before that, but at least to 609 AD, when the Pantheon in Rome had all these gods like Jupiter and all these other Roman gods removed and it was turned to, the pantheon in Rome was turned into a church. It's now known as the St. Mary's of Martyrs Church. And you could go now today and it's still 
seen as a church as it was for the last or over 1,000 years. But when it was turned into a church, Christians would also take All Saints Day or All Hallows Day to remember that we are not running this race alone here. We're to remember that through time and space, we are connected to Christ and connected to one another because we are His church. Other churches and denominations have taken All Saints Day or All Hallows Day and have celebrated uh, this holiday on different days throughout the year. All Hallows Eve was important because many people would prepare for All Saints Day or All Hallows Day that evening by putting candles and holding a vigil in front of tombstones of fellow Christians. And it can be because of perhaps as Some commentators would state that there was some mixing between some Celtic traditions that were already in existence, and people would just add on to already existing traditions. I don't know. But now when we talk about Halloween, not many of us would probably think of All Saints Eve or All Saints Day. In fact, Whenever I talk about Halloween every year, there's at least one or two people that roll their eyes because they assume Halloween is this. Just accept it, Puge. But not many of us remember the church, let alone celebrate this day with thankful hearts that we are included among the saints through faith in Jesus Christ. But before Halloween became the Halloween that we know of today, meaning candy, costumes, and revelry, in the 16th century, it was still known as All Saints Day. All Saints Day is on November 1st. But the church had become corrupted, and it corrupted this meaning and purpose as well. What they started to do, and I'm going to briefly shorten and abridge it for us this morning, was that the church at that time, that even those bound for heaven... So you believe in Christ, you are bound for heaven. Even if you were in that camp, you had to be cleansed of your earthly sins. And this cleansing or purging in the afterlife took place in a place, uh, took place in a place called purgatory. The church started offering certificates. They call these indulgences. And this would promise to lessen the time of cleansing for either yourself or for the others who had already died. All you had to do was give an offering. And so November 1st, while November 1st was an important day for All Saints Day, it started to become an important day for selling and buying these indulgences. And so the day before All Saints Day, on October 31st, On All Saints' Eve, or All Hallows' Eve, a German monk named Martin Luther, in the year 1517, would take 95 theses, and he would hammer it on the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany. And so what is the 95 theses? They are 95 statements that Luther wrote in response to the present and growing corruption in the church. Because it was customary in those days, if you disagreed with something or if you wanted to debate someone, you would pin the points of debate on the doors, and in this case, the church. 
What he was doing, he was asking other scholars or pastors or priests to debate him on the topics that he posted. But by Luther posting these 95 theses, he faced excommunication and death. So what made him do this? What made him go against what was tradition or what was established as a good like the selling and buying of indulgences? What made him do this? And it was Romans 1.17. And Romans 1.17 reads like this, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live. By faith. It was this verse that made him take a step back. All his life, he wanted to be a devout Catholic, a devout monk, and this verse made him take that step back. He was torn. He was struggling with what it meant to be a Christian. And in this verse, it says, For in it. For in what? For in the gospel. That's the context. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What does that even mean, right? And then this last part, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's from Habakkuk 2.4. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. So what does that even mean, that the righteous shall live by faith? And as he was studying this, the lights came on for Luther. And it, he realized it wasn't anything that you did. It wasn't anything that you bought. But the gospel is that you are saved by the righteousness of God from faith for faith. Or what that really means is from the beginning of faith to the end of faith. What does that mean? That means it's not an action that you do that saves you, but it's an action that is done to you that saves you. And it's this faith that you would live by. This verse that Paul begins with in Romans would be the thematic verse of the whole exposition of the gospel that he would do for the rest of the book in Romans. He would realize, so Martin Luther would realize that it is the justitia alienum or the alien or outside righteousness, the alien or outside justitia, the alien or outside righteousness that saves us namely the righteousness of Christ. And once he realized it, this is what he would say, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. So when we remember Reformation Sunday, we remember what God had started 505 years ago with a monk in Wittenberg, but also what he is still doing today in his church. And just as we've gone over John 15, as the Lord prunes, what he is doing is really what he is doing is purifying his church. And that's what the Reformation is. It is the church reformed, always reforming according to the word of God. We do not hold to a papal infallibility when he speaks ex cathedra. We do not see that as impeccable but we hold rather to the infallibility of the word of God, sola scriptura, which means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in the scriptures. The scriptures is the only perfect standard 
for truth. The Westminster uh, divines penned it this way in the Confessions of Faith. This is what they wrote, quote, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men, unquote. And so, if the church isn't identified then by the authority of the Pope or fellowship with the Pope, how can we see what the true church looks like? Because if you went to the wrong church, you might end up learning things that are totally contrary to God. You might think you're a Christian when in actuality you are not. In the very least, you would be in trouble. And so if you have faith, if you are a person of faith, finding a church that truly is Jesus Christ's bride would be a top priority for you. And so when asked what the biggest threat to the church is today, many faithful teachers, yes, throughout time, they would answer like this. They would answer that the biggest threat to the church today are false churches or false doctrine. And they would even go back to the time of the apostles. You can see it in their writings. As you come and drive to this place in 125 Galway, you may see a sign that says Christian Science Church and an arrow pointing that way. Christian Science Church is an oxymoron. It's, uh, it's a misnomer. That place is neither Christian nor do they teach science. And so it's not a church. We'll look at 1 Corinthians. The biggest threat to the church isn't persecution. It isn't some outside agenda, but the biggest threat is from within. It's places that call themselves churches, but they are not. Jesus constantly, Jesus and the apostles constantly warn about. They don't warn about the Romans. Like, watch out for the outside Romans. But they constantly warn about false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. And so I would think that, yes, this also should be our top priority. So is this, is this place now truly God's church? And is there any way we can know for sure? And through the word of God, Reformed theology has something that it has called the marks of the church. The marks of the church. The true mark of the church, that ultimately the true mark of the church is in its submission to the scriptures. But what does that look like? And it's delineated most often to three things. That means in the very least, the church must have these three things to be called a church. And they are, number one, faithful preaching or teaching. Faithful preaching. Number two, faithful administration of the sacraments. And number three, faithful church discipline. So faithful preaching, faithful administration of the sacraments, faithful church discipline. 
in focusing on these marks, the reformers were not saying that all a church needs are these three marks. That's not what they were saying. What they intended by listing these three were to focus on how you can outwardly recognize a true church. The true church of Christ has many more marks than these. And I could name prayer, devotion, fellowship, suffering, love. But these aren't always observable marks. But the three marks here are there to display the faithfulness of the church. And do we see this in history? Yes, we see these three marks that are noted in church history. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, this is what it says. This Catholic, that means universal, this Catholic church hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible, and particular churches which are members thereof are more or less pure according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. Those are the three marks that I just mentioned. Calvin, even before the Westminster Confession was written, Calvin would write, or, and he would devote a whole book from his institutes, book four, to or on the church. And here's an excerpt. Wherever we see the word of God sincerely preached and heard, wherever we see the sacraments administered according to the institution of Christ, there we cannot have any doubt that the church of God has some existence since his promise cannot fail. And then he quotes Matthew 18.20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them, which is a verse on discipline. Later on, he would write extensively on the third mark, discipline. He would write about it again, but more concisely in his letter to Cardinal Sadoletto. But what about then, before Calvin, or the Reformation even? Do we see this in church history? And the answer is yes, we do. There's writings called the Didache, or the teachings of the apostles, which go all the way back to the first century. They are distinguishing points that are written, but they're not numbered like I numbered them, but they are written in order. And I'm just going to summarize, the, or I'll just read the first part of the three paragraphs that the Didache has in order. First, on the Lord's day, gather together and break bread and give thanks, having first confessed your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. Those are the sacraments. The next paragraph says this, Therefore, appoint yourselves bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord, men who are humble and not avaricious and true and approved, for they too carry out for you the ministry of the prophets and teachers. That's number two. That's the ministry of preaching and teaching. And the third paragraph says, furthermore, correct one another, not in anger, but in peace as you find in the gospel. And if anyone wrongs his neighbor, let no one speak to him, nor let him hear a word from you until he repents. That's discipline. And it stems from this idea given to us probably most uh, concentratedly in Acts 2.42, where it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So faithful preaching should be something that you heard earlier when Romans 1.17 was exposited or declared and explained to you. The Bible shows us how God uses preaching from certain chosen men as his ordained means of speaking to his people. For Luther, preaching stood at the center of the gospel. 
In the sermon, there is the move, he would say, from law to gospel. The fundamental struggle of the Christian is played out every time the preacher ascends the pulpit. What that means is that when the word is preached, the Christian is torn down by the law and then built back up by the gospel. What preaching is, is then it is a supernatural act that goes beyond the mere skill set or intelligence of the preacher. It is God speaking and acting in the hearts of his people. And so even when I was thinking about how we set our church up, I would always tell the elders, our deacons, our staff, that I would love it if we had a huge pulpit, but then you wouldn't see anybody here. But the pulpit would be so huge that the preacher would be the small person behind the pulpit, which signified the centrality of the word that we hold dear in our services. Calvin would add to this, he would add that faithful preaching doesn't only entail the preacher preaching, though. A man can faithfully declare the word of God on a street corner, but it doesn't mean that there's a church there. What he meant was that for preaching to be preaching, not only must there be a faithful declaration, but there also must be a faithful receiving. The word preached must be spoken and heard. That's why in our liturgy, there is something called response. In Reformed theology, worship is sometimes called a dialogue between God and his people. That means when you're sitting here in worship, you are dialoguing with the King of kings and Lord of lords. When he speaks, we respond. That's what worship is. And so in a true church, the mark you would see is in worship, is the word faithfully preached and the word faithfully received. So what exactly is preached then? What is the content of the preached word? The word of God, yes. But not just bits and pieces of the word of God. You don't just take one Bible verse here and then just say whatever you want after you quote this one little Bible verse. You preach the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God must be preached and taught. This is what we would call, or the Bible calls, sound doctrine. Titus 1.9 says this, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There must be a preacher who preaches sound doctrine. And then Paul continues on in his letter to Titus 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Going further, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes this to Timothy, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound works of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. In his second letter, he writes this, 2 Timothy 2.2, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What does this all mean? 
It means that it's not the office of the Pope that Paul calls to be passed down. It's the office of the preacher. And why is that so important? In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Everything that God teaches us in his word is given to us so that we are equipped. And what that includes, it includes places that we are to judge. We are to judge the world and even angels. Yes, angels. In 1 Corinthians 6, 2 to 3, and some people are like, wait, aren't angels like stronger, better, wiser than us? Yes. But it says here in 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? How are you going to judge or rule anything if you don't know anything? What kind of judge would you be if you didn't know anything about the law and just judged according to your own thoughts and whims? You would be, quite frankly, like a lot of the judges in our time today, though, like how Roe versus Wade was decided or Obergefell versus Hodges, a.k.a. abortion and gay marriage. It's decisions like these that will be overturned, that have been overturned, by righteous judges, and in turn, those judges that gave this judgment will have judgment pronounced on them. So sound doctrine is incredibly important. Sound doctrine must be based on the whole counsel of God, and the whole counsel of God must be preached and taught in the churches. That is what God has ordained preachers to preach and His church to receive. Faithful interpretation of the word will lead to faithful living. Like it says in 1 Timothy 4, 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Not only that, but faithful preaching will help you safeguard what you've already been given. Now, I know I'm going fast on all the Bible verses, but there's a lot to get through. In 2 Timothy 1, 13 to 13-14, it says this, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Faithful preaching, then, helps us guard what we have been given, and it keeps us from idolatry and addiction. Why is this so important? Is it really primary? Is it really at the top of the list? What happens when the word of God is preached? What is your heart thinking? What is your spirit doing? And it doesn't matter if I'm preaching. I'm not, spe I'm not speaking about myself. I'm talking about what the word of God says about the word being preached. What Jesus says about the word being preached. You know, when Jesus was teaching... And he was teaching a lot of things. It was amazing. People's minds were being blown. They had never heard teaching like this before. Or someone preach or teach the way Jesus had until he came on the scene. 
And it says in Luke chapter 11, verse 27 to 28, as he was saying these things, as he was teaching these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice, and this is what she said to him. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Your mom is truly blessed for having birthed someone like you. That's what she was saying. Jesus responds this way in verse 28. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. There it is, preaching and receiving. If you hear the word of God and you receive, you are truly blessed. It's not Mary that we should think is blessed just because she bore Jesus. It's those who can hear the word preached and receive it into their hearts and lives. Those are the truly blessed because that's the church. So if you're moving churches or looking for a church, what makes you stay or check out a certain church? Perhaps you're even here checking us out, right? What are the qualities that you are looking for? Is it a place that has bumping music or has at least a decent drummer? A drummer carried well today, actually. But lots of people... Is that what you're looking for? Lots of people, your age group or your life stage group, is that one of the main things you are looking for? Where singles can mingle or where families can gripe about their agonies? Or maybe you want nurseries that will cater to your kids' every need. But by establishing that the Word of God and its proper teaching, preaching, and receiving are most important, by having that as the priority, all these other things, if they are important, will follow. But if your doctrine is faulty, your church will be broken. If you raise and elevate other things outside of what the Word of God says because of worldly wisdom, Pastor Eugene, don't you know if you have this ministry, your church will explode or something to that effect, your church will break. This is following then on God's promises, God's promises that he has decided to act by his spirit through his word. What this also does is that when we place ourselves in submission to the word of God, we acknowledge that we are not the smartest person in the room. You know, I'm going to take somewhat of a hot take, but it's really not. Honestly, it's not. It's now coming out how the smartest people in the room, or at least the people that were supposed to be the smartest people in the room, were wrong. They were wrong on this mRNA technology and its efficacy. But it's not just its capacity to perform its intended function. They were wrong even on its functions. An executive for Pfizer, when asked in an EU parliamentary hearing about testing to see the mRNA shot's ability to stop transmission. This is what he, he asked, quote, tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market, unquote. The president of International Developed Markets responded no, because they had to, quote, move at the speed of science, unquote. Move at the speed of science. 
First of all, anyone who ever tells you that they need to or we need to move at the speed of science should be fired. They are not a scientist, they're a bureaucrat that knows nothing about the scientific process, and they probably didn't pass eighth grade earth science. Secondly, that means that we have been given incorrect information or have been blatantly lied to by those in charge, people from the medical professions all the way to politicians. Yes, even the President of the United States is on record saying that if you get the shot, you won't transmit the disease. I had parents come to me telling me that they can't wait for their kids to get the shot so they can finally go to school or see their grandparents. All these plans and decisions predicated on the notion that these shots would stop transmission. Now the machine is churning over time to say that this never happened. It never happened, but unless you have the memory span of a goldfish, you remember how every bureaucrat and politician said this on every media outlet they could. And no one's taking responsibility. The people that were supposed to be the smartest in the room were not only wrong, but their failure to supply the general public with accurate information has put the entire nation, maybe even the world, in an un incredibly unstable position, politically, medically, in all those areas. People stop trusting their doctors. Some doctors stop trusting their supervisor, and it just keeps on going up the chain. And I say this because for me, it's praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that there isn't someone fallible that's supposed to be the smartest person in the room. There is a time that has been set apart for you. Doesn't matter how smart or stupid you are. Doesn't matter what intellectual level or skill set you have. There is a time set apart for you to sit and learn, a time to submit yourself to a high ultimate authority. Someone truly the smartest person in the room, bar none, is present. By giving us the opportunity to sit under the preaching of his word, we see that in the beginning, it was by his word that God created the world and all life in it. He spoke it and it was. But then by Genesis 3, we see what happened next. Our first parents sinned, and they were cast out from the garden and from the presence of God, what we call the fall. But it was not without God's promise, God's word that would flow throughout all of humanity thereafter and throughout the Bible. In God's curse to the serpent that deceived, God would say that the offspring of the woman would crush him. These first words of hope after the fall would continue to flow all throughout the Bible. And yes, to Genesis chapter 12, where God's word would call Abraham out of Ur. And by his calling Abram out, God's people were called out and thus created. The people of God were the people of that promise that the offspring would crush the serpent's head. But then we read about how the children would Abraham would go down to Egypt and eventually fall into slavery for centuries. And when that slavery looked unbreakable, unbearable, God hears the cries of his people. And what does he do? He sends out his word to call Moses. Through the burning bush, he calls Moses. And subsequently, he calls his whole people, the nation of Israel, to, his, to be his people. 
He would give them Exodus chapter 20. He would give them his law, and by accepting God's law, they became God's people. What constituted God's people? Those who adhered to his word. Throughout the Old Testament, we see groups of people either hearing the word or others refusing to hear the word. And the Old Testament says the phrase or its equivalent that the word of the Lord came to his people or thus says the Lord almost 4,000 times in the Old Testament. Those who were able to hear the word of the Lord then were able to respond in faith. That means those who had faith believed God, not believed in God. You can believe in God because even the demons believe in God. And they shudder. But those who had faith in God believed God. They believed his promise and they lived according to it. The people in the Old Testament lived according to the word of God. They were led by the word of God. They trusted in the word of God. The object of their faith, their hope, and the great promise is the great object of our faith. It led to our faith, the object of our faith, namely Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the great promise, the great hope, and the great object of our faith. We know this because the word of God shows us what to believe. The people of the New Testament are also people of the Word. We are shown in the scriptures that Christ came, lived, and died as the perfect atonement and sacrifice for our sins. That Word we receive, we receive by faith. And we see that God uses His Word as the central instrument in creating faith. You see, we couldn't live by what God had shown us. We saw that it was good. The law is good, but we weren't able to live by it. We couldn't muster up the strength, the determination, whatever was needed to perfectly follow it, and thereby we became dead also in our trespasses. We became dead, and we became decomposed. We were like dry bones fully rotted, but through God's word, dry bones have life breathed back into them, just as Ezekiel experienced. We live through faith, and through this faith we experience life enter our selfless, our lifeless selves. What we see is we would see God reach down and rip out our old hearts of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that can now feel and express love toward God. Hearts that are finally soft and submissive to his word. His word has and continues to bring people to life. And this is the word that is preached to you from the pulpit. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Receive his mercy so that his perfect patience might be displayed in you. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, what was once hard and made of stone, dead, has been changed, has been changed by Christ, and we have been given hearts of flesh now so that we can serve you, adore you, worship you, and live according to your standards. Empower your church that we would be people of the word to proclaim the good news from within our families to the ends of the earth. We pray, God, that we would be a church that holds scripture, your word, as the ultimate authority, infallible, unbreakable, because this holds your promise, the promise of your son, Jesus. And we thank you, God, that we were given this promise and reminded of it this morning. Let's take this time to pray. Let's lift up our hearts to God in worship, in response to the word that he has given us, in adoration, in praise, giving him all the glory. Let's pray.